0: Righty, good morning church. Great to be together again. Looking forward to this morning. We're going to be carrying on in our series called Questions Jesus Asked. And uh, if you've got your Bible with you, you, can turn to Mark chapter 5 and get there while I intro this a bit. Um, we're looking at some key questions Jesus asked. Questions we need to settle in our hearts and minds, especially at the start of a new year. And just out of interest, Uh, I wanted to know, how many questions did Jesus actually ask in in the scriptures? Because, I mean, he's always asking uh, questions. That's like Jesus' method of getting truth into our hearts and lives. And Google tells me Jesus asked 307 different questions. And so you'll be pleased to know this series isn't 307 weeks long. But we're just looking at some of the key ones. And uh, every week, these are questions we need to settle as we um, lean into Jesus together as He encourages us, as He meets us, and as He engages us relationally at a personal level. As we answer these questions for ourselves, it's just that our hope and our heart in doing this series will just fuel us to love and follow and enjoy Jesus more this year. So we're going to read the passage together and then I'll unpack it for us. It's going to be in Mark chapter 5, verses 21 to 43. When Jesus had crossed, I have to apologize for the PowerPoint here. It's the woes of crossing over between Mac and Windows. So hopefully you can read it, and if you're in the back and you can't, we'll lay hands on your eyes later. Verse 21, when Jesus had crossed over again by boat to the other side, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the sea. One of the synagogue leaders, a named Jairus, came, and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet. He begged him earnestly, My little daughter is dying. Come and lay your hands on her so that she can get well and live." So Jesus went with him, and a large crowd was following and pressing against him. Now a woman suffering from bleeding for 12 years has endured much under many doctors. She had spent everything she had and was not helped at all. On the contrary, she became worse. Having heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his clothing. For she said, if I just touch his clothes, I'll be made well. Instantly, her flow of blood ceased, and she sensed in her body that she was healed of her affliction. Immediately, Jesus realized that Power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and said, "Who touched my clothes?" His disciple said to him, "You see the crowd pressing against you, and yet you ask who touched me." But he was looking around to see who had done this. The woman, with fear and trembling, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. "Daughter," he said to her, "your faith has saved you. Go in peace." And be healed from your affliction. While he was still speaking, people came from the synagogue leader's house and said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher anymore? When Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. He did not let anyone accompany him except Peter, James, and John, and James' brother. They came to the leader's house, and he saw a commotion. People weeping and wailing loudly. He went in and said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but asleep. They laughed at him, but he put them all outside. He took the child's father, mother, and those who were with him and entered the place where the child was. Then he took the child by the hand and said to her, Talitha, which is translated, little girl, I say to you, get up. Immediately, the girl got up and began to walk. She was twelve years old. At this, they were utterly astounded. Then he gave them strict orders that no one should know about this, and told them to give her something to eat. What an amazing passage! It's just so encouraging. And uh, as I said, is this Mark fine? Hey, so use the handout rather, John. Is it annoying to anyone? All good? Okay, I'm going to carry on. What's that? A lot of bass. Let me try the hand on. Is that better? Okay, thank you. What an amazing passage, and again, we're looking at that question, who touched me or who touched my clothes? And it is such a good question for us today, and just at the start of this morning, and where I want us to respond to by the end, and I'm praying where God might stir us this morning, is just ask that question in your life as you consider how we might respond. In what ways do you need the touch of Jesus in your life? This morning, as we come here, it might be a physical need, it might be something more relational, it might be uh, it's just something in the inner parts of your being. I'm encouraged in this passage that we see both the miraculous power of Jesus to heal disease and death, and the loving kindness of Jesus to deal with the distress of a father in need. And so it's a beautiful picture of us coming to Him as we are in our need. There's something going on here, and you would have noticed it. in the way Mark writes this passage, we call it a Markan sandwich. And he starts with Jairus, then we hear about the woman suffering from bleeding, and then we get back to Jairus. And he's written it in that way so that we'd see this whole section as one sort of theological unit proclaiming a truth about who Jesus is and what he's come to do. And, of course, we've seen his power over disease and death and even distress. And it's just this beautiful uh, mesh of both of these things. Yes, he really is that big. Yes, he has authority over everything. And, yes, he really is that personal and relational with us helping us through the things of life as we follow Him. And so what I'm praying for this morning is just for us to respond. In what ways do you need the touch of Jesus in your life afresh this morning? Whether that's a first-time encounter or whether it's a repeated encounter, we can know His power and presence in fresh ways this morning. And so I want to attack this passage in a way that I've done differently in the past. Uh, This morning, I want to look at the passage through two headings, if you're taking notes. Firstly, I want to look at the spiritual barriers we might need to overcome to experience the power and presence of Jesus. We just see this in Jairus and in the woman. They're models to us, of how to work through some of the barriers we might have in our hearts, spiritual barriers that sometimes keep us from experiencing the touch of Jesus. And then at the same time, we're seeing spiritual power, the way that Jesus' love and authority can move within us and among us. So let's look at Jesus's. Uh, how he speaks into our spiritual barriers and actually leads us towards himself. Again, as we consider seeking the touch of Jesus afresh this morning, I know many of us as we come here this morning, if you've been a Christian for a while, you maybe have uh, memories of God meeting you in unique and special ways, just profound moments that are maybe burned into your psyche about God's presence just meeting you in a special way. We know those things are maybe a bit unique and and sometimes rare, but the gospel truth is that we can actually experience and tap into a little bit more of his touch in our lives as we seek him. we have to recognize before we get there that there are spiritual barriers in our lives, and we are carrying sin in our hearts, we're carrying fear, we're carrying struggles, we're carrying pain, we're carrying pressures. There's a whole lot of things working within us and around us that can at times keep us or or at least present something we need to work through in order to get closer to Jesus. And I'm going to unpack and explain these more fully, but the point and maybe a picture. My kids are being sick this week, so this is clear in my head. In the same way that a blocked nose keeps you from breathing in deeply, there are spiritual barriers that we can sometimes wrestle with that keep us from experiencing Christ in deepening ways. And Jairus and the woman are, are our guides this morning to help us understand how we can overcome some of these internal barriers and know the beautiful touch of Jesus. And so I want to talk about three barriers to experiencing Jesus this morning. Let's look at Jairus. It would seem at the start of this passage, we know how it ends, but at the start of this passage that he is facing prejudice and pride. And he has, by the, by the end of this, it seems that he runs to Jesus. He overcomes his prejudice and pride. But uh, I know when I use the term pride and prejudice, my, my mom and my sister loved that, that book and series. So I get PTSD when I hear that phrase a little bit. But what we hear about Jesus, um, Jairus, what we learn about him is that he was a synagogue leader. That's what the passage says. Kind of means he was a bit of an elder in that synagogue. And he was a respected leader. He would have taught in the synagogue. Uh, It seems that he was also a marketplace leader. So he kind of had respect and authority on both sides of this thing. and, And people trusted in his authority. Now, part of the context of the Gospels is that many of the Jewish leaders were growing suspicious of Jesus and who he was. They viewed him as a heretic who was losing his way. And ultimately, we know where that would lead. They ultimately canceled them in the worst way possible uh, in, his, in his death on the cross. And it would seem that Jairus is overcoming this. I'm missing a page here. This is my worst nightmare. I'm so sorry. So there is, a, there is a reality that Jairus is operating within. In the synagogue, there was an expectation, as it were, from the leaders to view Jesus as suspicious. And that was growing as Jesus grew in popularity as he preached the gospel. It was so counter to anything they had ever heard. And Jesus was in, um, inaugurating something new, and we'll talk, that, talk about that a bit later. But it takes, we have to realize, it takes great courage from Jairus to break through his prejudice and pride and actually run to Jesus. It would have been much easier for him to just keep quiet, not upset his his co-leaders, not accept the Jewish uh, people in the synagogues and just kind of uh, hide. But I can't imagine this desperate father choosing to save face and keep his reputation instead of running to Jesus to heal his daughter, right? And so there's something he's doing. He's overcoming his pride and his prejudice. He's running to Jesus. He's recognizing his need. Now, look, let's just consider this at a personal level around us. There's a lot of pride and prejudice uh, around us. Just at even a cultural level, people can get stuck in their uh, preconceptions of who Jesus is. And there are cultural preconceptions of who Jesus is. Some people think he's a great moral teacher. Some people think he's just a nice guy. And so when you get stuck in your preconceptions, uh, people maybe don't uh, consider Jesus for who he said he was. And it becomes a barrier to them experiencing Jesus in deepening ways. Maybe at a family or friendship Level. I know there's some people in the room, when you became a Christian, it was met with some heat from your family, or maybe you lost some friends, and it's taken great faith for you to overcome their prejudice and their pride, and you've broken through that so that you can experience the touch of Jesus. It's a beautiful thing. I think even at a personal level, we have to recognize that the journey of faith is one of asking God to help us see these areas of unbelief in our hearts more clearly, that we might know Him more deeply. I can tell you in my life, something I struggled with as an early Christian when I was a bit younger, was that I struggled to believe God really loved me. I I believed His love was conditional. I would never, I grew up in church, I knew I would never say that out loud, I'd never admit that, But there was always something in the back of my mind that felt that God was always either disappointed in me or angry with me. You know what that did? It was a barrier to me experiencing the love and power of Jesus. So what happened? Of course, as we gospel ourselves, as we come under the truth, as we break through our pride, our prejudice, our preconceptions, as we run to Jesus... Trusting who he is, we're experiencing him in deepening ways. It's essential, friends, that we make progress here. Our unbiblical preconceptions of who Jesus is can actually keep us uh, from experiencing him because they can keep Jesus at arm's length, as it were. Now, listen, I'm not saying that we have to have it all figured out before we can know Jesus. Of course, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that we need to ask God to reveal the areas of pride and prejudice in our hearts that we might know Him more deeply. Are there any areas in your life of cultural prejudice that are weighing on you, maybe external pressures from people you care about? Maybe we're weighing people's opinions more than our own need to run to Christ. Maybe it's an area of personal pride or sin that's keeping you from running to Jesus. These are areas that require great humility, and we need to run to Him. And I know, as I said, I've grown up in church. I've seen this time and time again I, in my own life and in, and in some of my friends' lives. There'll be, for example, uh, a call to come forward to pray after the service, and we won't come because that makes us look bad. It says I'm broken. It says I'm weak. It says I have a need. See, what see what's happening there? Our pride is blocking us from experiencing Jesus in deepening ways and having a, a fresh experiences of His grace and power and even robbing others of, of gospeling us in the moment and helping us come under His rule and reign again. It's a beautiful thing when we work through our pride and prejudice and run to Jesus. What, it's what Jairus did. It's what God is inviting us into too. And then later in the story, if we just stick with Jairus for now, we see that he's battling something that could also be his, his ankle tap. But he breaks through it. Uh, Jesus breaks through it in his kindness. It's, it's two things, doubt and fear. Two incredibly powerful enemies of the gospel in our lives. Doubt and fear. We can so often doubt the goodness of God. And we see it in the story here. See what's happening? Jairus makes his request to Jesus and says, please, won't you come to my house and heal my daughter? And then everything gets interrupted. And Jesus ignores him for a second and focuses on healing the woman. And I can sort of imagine Jairus as a a spiritual leader, maybe on one hand going, this is amazing, God. Yay, like you're healing this woman. Bless you. But then news comes that his daughter has died. And you can just feel the the weight of burden and despair on this father's heart as he he processes this moment. This is the deep doubt of God's goodness. Maybe fear creeping in, maybe despair creeping in. The worst has happened. And I think one of the hardest things in life at times is dealing with the questionable delays of God. Maybe this morning you're coming here feeling the weight of what you feel is, is, a, is a delay from God. Maybe it's a, a longing for a spouse or a burden at work or maybe something to do with health or just a longing for kids. And you're just trusting God to come through for you and you feel like you're waiting and waiting and He's not coming through in the way you had hoped or He's working in every hour one else's life, but not yours. And maybe doubt is creeping in. Jairus runs to Jesus. says, Jesus, I know you can heal my daughter. Would you do it? And there's a delay. I can just imagine for a glimpse of a moment, his heart questioning. Maybe I, I missaw Jesus. Maybe he isn't who I thought he was. But we know God's timing isn't our timing. He works differently. He works differently to us. I, I think every African would know that, that timing is relative, right? We, uh, I went to a, a wedding in December, and uh, it said half past 11. So when was I there? It was my friend. You guys, many of you know Lenka. His, his wedding was a beautiful day, beautiful African wedding. And it started at half past 11. And uh, my wife's business was providing the cake. So we were there at half past 10. A wedding started at half past one. And that's cool. It was a chill day. It was beautiful. But we know timing, even in this room, is, is timing is relevant re- relevant. I mean, if we if we say, look, what time does church start? That seems to be a moving target too. But the timing of God, my friends, is, is something we just can't wrap our heads around at, at, at times. Not only his timing, but his decisions. Like we know he's sovereign. But his will is sometimes so out of anything we can comprehend. And I can imagine Jairus just wondering, what are you doing, Lord? And can I trust you? And so how does Jesus reply to him? Verse 36, he says that when Jesus overheard what was said, he told the synagogue leader, don't be afraid, only believe. See, Jesus knows what he's doing, and I think Jesus, it's not just a strategy of Mark the gospel writer. I think that this may have been Jesus delaying the healing. He knew he was going to heal his daughter. That's not a question, but I think Jesus sometimes maybe intentionally delayed that to teach Jairus an even greater lesson for his sake, that you can trust me in all things. And that if you knew what I knew, Jairus, this is Jesus speaking, you, you would have no reason to stress. What's the result? J- Jesus goes to Jairus, Jairus' house and the differences are completely uh, at odds with one another. The family there is mourning. Je- Jesus comes in hopeful. Everyone is confused and despairing. Jesus comes in certain. He knows what's going to happen. Jesus, Jairus maybe feels deflated. Jesus is expectant. He knows what's coming. We could go on. And we see an enter of, his ki- of his, uh, a moment of his kingdom entering in as he miraculously raises a girl from the dead. Just an expression of his power and love in a moment to a desperate father and a dying girl. Doug tapped into this brilliantly last week. I just want to double down on that. Like, we believe in the power of God even still today. It's rare, but we believe He can do amazing things. As I said earlier, maybe physically, maybe there's another another need. But the touch of Jesus has not lost its power. Sometimes the problem is that we're not seeking His touch. Tyrus runs to Jesus. Jesus meets his need, and then he leads him through the doubt and the fear into a deepening place of trust. Confusing times are hard, aren't they, when doubt creeps in? We don't know what God is doing, but I think we have to learn to doubt our doubts and remember who the gospel says he is and remember his past faithfulness to us and recount what He's done for us. Even preach the gospel over ourselves. The mighty Charles Spurgeon, he said, when you can't trace His hand, trust His heart. The gospel proves what kind of God He is. If you come in here this morning with deep doubt about who God is, we don't know how things are going to turn out for you. God doesn't always give us what we want, but we know we can trust His heart. And we know that he's all-powerful. And he knows, we know that his touch is an invitation for us to know him more deeply. Jairus is an example of breaking through doubt and being led to Jesus in deepening ways. Let's look at the woman suffering from bleeding. What's behind her ailment? What's behind her disease? Well, I think, I think it's deep shame. Shame is a powerful force in our lives. We know this. The the text tells us she's been bleeding for 12 years. She's had this ailment. We're not really sure what it was, but we know it's prolonged and chronic. It's lasted 12 years, and it seems to be some kind of hemorrhaging that's affecting her whole life. It says that she's tried everything to heal this, been to many doctors. And Mark tells us that it's actually only gotten worse. It seems that she's at the end of herself. And again, she reaches out for the touch of Jesus in her lives, uh, in her life. She breaks through the shame that would keep her from hiding, runs to Jesus to touch him, and experiences his life-changing power. And Jesus, it says that Jesus could tell that power left him. Like in the Greek, it's the first time we hear the word dynamis in the gospel of Mark. And it's the word dynamis, that's the word we get dynamite from. It's this explosive power of God to be able to heal all things, even physically. What would have happened to this woman if her shame had kept her in hiding? That's what happens to us, isn't it? It's better to be in hiding. I think that we have to overcome at times the the identity that shame gives us. She was uh, isolated. She was seen as unclean, even contagious, like our brother Doug. Distanced relationally from people. Avoided. People would avoid her. And this identity now was growing. And it was defined by shame. Friends, shame is a powerful enemy of the gospel. It'll tell you, if you're a Christian, it'll tell you you're unloved when the gospel tells us we've been loved beyond measure. It'll, it'll tell us that you've been, uh, we've been abandoned when we know the blood of Jesus has bought us and will keep us for all eternity. It'll tell us that we're dirty when we know righteousness has made us clean. If you're struggling with any lingering shame, just put it up here. Romans 8 verse 1, so encouraging. It just tells us what happens in the gospel. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that means? It means there's nothing left to answer for. There is no basis for shame. You have been forgiven. You've been cleaned and cleansed. And Jesus has taken uh, all our shame away. I think this is a thing we have to fight if you're a Christian. There's two ways to live. We can trust the identity that shame gives us, or we can trust the identity that our Savior gives us. His blood speaks a better word. I love C.S. Lewis. He says this, because this really is an issue of belief, isn't it? Our Our shame will tempt us to believe who it says we are but the gospel speaks a better word, and we have to combat that unbelief and trust that we really are who he says we are. That's, this is what C.S. Lewis is getting at. He says, if God forgives us, we must forgive ourselves. Otherwise, it is almost like setting up ourselves as a higher tribunal than him. It's like saying, God, I'm a higher authority in my life than you are, And what I say about me is more true than what you've said about me. How can that possibly be true? God is the creator, is the one who alone has authority to give identity and to speak what is true. He says, the gospel is our new identity. Can you see how shame can become a a, a hindrance, a barrier to us experiencing the deepening love of Jesus? Again, this woman is a model. She's a model to us. We can break through shame and trust that he will love us and that we're safe in his love. And So these barriers are are, are significant things in our lives. We, We can break through these things. And Jesus just wants to encourage us at every level as we consider what's behind our deepening needs. He asked this question, who touched me? Well, it's not because he didn't know and it's not because he was angry it's because he wants to engage the woman personally relationally and so he's asking I believe us today again who is reaching out to touch me who needs help who wants to know me who who wants to again encounter my love and power afresh who wants to know in deepening ways that they're forgiven and cleansed who wants to have shame taken away Who wants doubt turned into deepening expressions of trust? It's not a small question. It's an invitation all Christ followers. And I think just today we can respond, God, yes, fill me. God, yes, meet me, change me, stir up a love for you again within me, God. Would you meet me in ways I need? You know what I need. We need the touch of Jesus. So just as we close for the last little bit, what I want us to look at is is spiritual power. Because how does this affect not just our lives, but many different things? I want want to just suggest four ways, four encouragements of the touch of Jesus. Because a shift is taking place here in the Gospels. And it's implicit in the questions Jesus is asking. He is the ultimate truth that has come to establish His kingdom. And when you read the Bible, you'll see a a difference between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And and what's happening there is the kingdom of God is breaking in. We see it in part now, and we'll see it in full one day. We call it the consummation when He comes and uh, redeems us all and comes back for us. But what we're seeing in the Gospels, and even today... Are the expressions of Jesus' authority as the king in his kingdom coming to bear on us where we are? And I think this encourages us in a few ways. And I just want to stir us towards seeking the touch of Jesus and maybe just reflecting on this today or, or this week. How does this encourage us? That Jesus' touch is for us? I think a few ways. First, his touch is personal. It's deeply personal. It's amazing to read these stories of Jairus and the suffering woman and how Jesus engaged them relationally. He loves relationally. He's not impersonal. He listens to them. He loves them. He doesn't need them to tell him what their need is. He already knows that, but he wants to engage at a personal level. And he knows what's going on in your life. Friends, what, what is your need? God looked at the question last week, what do you want me to do for you? Jesus is active and working in our lives. His touch is personal. Nothing is hidden from Him. He's not unaware. Just an encouragement to us today, would we cry out to Him afresh and say, yeah, God, I need you. Even my lack of desiring you is, is where I need your touch. Would you stir up a deepening desire for you? Would you restore to me the joy of my salvation? Would you come through for me where I need your touch? It's only in your touch. That's the second thing. His touch is powerful. I mean, just imagine the story of Jairus and the bleeding, a woman suffering from bleeding. Jairus overcomes his doubt and he's got deep trust. But what if Jesus has no power? Then what does this trust mean? It's meaningless. And what if the woman overcomes her shame, has great courage, runs to Jesus, but Jesus can't do anything for her? Again, it's meaningless. But that's absolutely not the case, right? The touch of Jesus is powerful. Matthew 28, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Even Mark 2, there's a story of a paralytic who who needs to be healed. And Jesus has has a a bit of a conversation with the people there. He says, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say pick up your mat and walk? And then he says, that you might know I have all authority. Get up, China. What he's getting at is I have got all powerful. I'm the ultimate authority over everything. Doesn't it give you confidence to call on his touch? To meet you in your need as we just consider the areas of our life where we need the touch of Jesus. We're not calling into the void, we're calling to a personal God and a powerful God who can meet us afresh and actually change us. A third thought Jesus, this touch is pervasive. I just want for a moment, can we just lift our eyes a little bit off ourselves for a moment? And I was just encouraged as we were worshiping these flags. Yeah, that's, that's not us, by the way. If you're new here, we're not like the church of the nations. But, you know, we love the gospel. This is just the school stuff. But we love the gospel. And it's, it's actually, I want to keep it there because it's a reminder to us of the kind of God we serve. Like our friends, our family, our city, our nation, the nations of the world. Nothing gets left untouched. His touch is pervasive, and so we can call on Him and intercede for Him to work where we see the need. I mean, just even our own nation, there's just so much discouragement at the moment. There's so much fear. There's so much worry. There's so much frustration. I think Christians have a unique call to intercede for God's power to be poured out where it's needed. Our country needs it right now. His power, his touch is pervasive. We can lean into that together. Just so as we close again, I know this word, maybe is a bit naff, but I said his power is precious. I couldn't think of a better word. But really what I want us to get at is in the scripture it talks about taste and see that the Lord is good. And there's just really nothing else better than knowing the touch of Jesus in our lives. There's nothing sweeter, there's nothing more beautiful, nothing more precious. Just in prep for this, I was reading again of uh, Jonathan Edwards, a, a great Puritan. And he was doing a study on 1 Timothy 1, and he, uh, this is what he has to say. This is his accounting of what happened to him says, the first instance that I remember of that sort of inward sweet delight in God and divine things that I have lived much in since was on reading those words, 1 Timothy 1:17. 1, now unto the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. As I read the words that came into my soul, and was, was as it were diffused through it, a sense of the glory of the divine being, a new sense, quite different from anything I've ever experienced before. Never any words of Scripture seemed to me as these words did. I thought with myself, how excellent a being that was, and how happy I should be if I might enjoy that God, and be wrapped up to Him in heaven and be, as it were, swallowed up in him forever. Isn't that a beautiful description, of the touch of Jesus? Just as we respond this morning, I just want us to consider that. Like his touch is personal, it's powerful, it's pervasive, it's precious. We can call on him together this morning again to meet us in our need. We know he's got authority over death and disease, and distress over all things. And so again, I want to ask us, in what areas of our lives do you need the touch of Jesus? In what areas do the people around you need the touch of Jesus? Let's take a moment to cry out together. The band will lead us as we respond in worship. Thank you, Jesus, you are alive and working. Thank you that you have sought us out. Thank you, God, that we've been loved just in the gospel. That even today, you might be saving some of us, working in some of our lives, uh, helping us trust that we are who you say we are, that uh, you have loved us with a perfect love that we're redeemed, that we're forgiven. God, I just pray that anyone feeling any kinds of shame this morning, that you would clothe them again in the gospel. Clothe us in the gospel this morning, Jesus. Help us glory and revel in the gospel truth of of who you say we are. We we just want to say together, like we desire you. We want you more. You know what we need. You know how uh, to work in our lives. We trust you. Just remembering the words of Luke 11, uh, 13, it says, If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Would you pour out your Spirit among us this morning?